Hey, everybody. Um, we're live tonight at School Psych Podcast. Very, very excited um, for this presentation. But um, my name is Rachel, and I am a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And I am like I'm, would like to remind you how to participate so that you can uh, share your thoughts, questions, ideas with our wonderful guests um, in the YouTube Hangout I mean, in the YouTube live screen, that if you're watching us live, you'll see a, a chat box to the right of the screen. Feel free to post any questions or comments in there. The three of us are checking on those. You can also post on Facebook, School Psych, Dear School Psychologist, or the School Psych podcast page. Post um, in comments under what the last post that was shared, or in, in private messages, or on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. We look forward to chatting with you. And now here's Anna. Anna will be back very shortly, I hope. So while in her absence, I will go ahead and just um, tell us tell you all a little bit about the poll that we created on Facebook. Um, we wanted to know that uh, if you are a school psychologist who is interested in developing students' social-emotional well-being, it can be difficult to know what the priorities are and where to start. And here's Anna, and she'll finish telling you what everybody said about which aspects of um, do they find most important to their work and also to fostering social-emotional learning competencies in their students. Hi, Anna. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, my computer is not working, so I'm on my phone. Oh, <laughs> but I don't have anything in front of me, so I'm um, okay. useless. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Well, introduce yourself, and then I will finish telling them about the poll. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm Anna. I'm a school psych in New York State. Hi, Anna. <laughs> All right. And so... Um, our, our poll, uh, we discovered from all of you that of all of the, I think I had about um, 12 or 13 different components of uh, social-emotional learning types of work, and most people, uh, 19 people thought that they were all equally important. Of them, um, positive behavior interventions and supports was the next most voted for category. Teaching the adults in schools about emotional intelligence and social-emotional learning first was the second most pop third most popular. Stress management, psychoeducation about stress and anxiety was next, character education, and then um, the implementation of Tier 1 evidence-based SEL curricula um, was after that with a few other votes. Check out our poll on the School Psych Podcast page um, if you want to uh, still vote or if you want to look at those other options. Um, and now we are very excited to um, introduce our wonderful, wonderful guest. I had the pleasure of um, here being at her workshop at the New York Association of School Psychologists just recently, and it was wonderful. Linda Lantieri, MA, has been in the field of education for over 40 years in a variety of capacities. Classroom teacher, assistant principal, director of a middle school in East Harlem, and faculty member at Hunter College in New York City. She is a Fulbright Scholar and internationally known speaker in the areas of social-emotional learning and mindfulness in education. Linda is one of the co-founders and presently a senior program advisor for the Collaborative of Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, CASEL. She is also an adjunct assistant professor in the psychology department of Columbia University Teachers College 
teaching in a special master's degree, degree program through the Spirituality Mind Body Institute. For the past 15 years, she served as the founding director of the Inner Resilience Program, whose mission is to cultivate the inner lives of students by integrating social and emotional learning with co contemplative practice. Hi, Linda. Welcome. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Um, so first of all, I just want to say hello to everyone on this call. And as I said to the three hosts beforehand, this is a wonderful commitment you're making to your own growth and to yourself and, and to the field. And I was just delighted to be part of that. And uh, as I hear what you were interested in, it sounds to me that all of them really have to do with the social and emotional development of children. And uh, as you could see by a little bit of what was shared around my bio, that this has been the thread for me throughout my entire life. Uh, I have to say that I'm hoping that some of you right now have this experience that I'm going to share with you uh, that I feel I've had my whole life, which is that my my inner calling of what I feel is important to do in the world and my outward expression of that has always meshed. Uh, and I don't take that lightly. Uh, I hope that I'm talking to some of you who feel like you are in the right place at the right time with the right people doing what is best for you to be doing right now in terms of making the world a better place. And I have to say that I've been fortunate enough, even though I've had many different positions, as you heard, each time there was this thread that was there. And the thread was, can school be places that nurture not only our minds and our intellectual capacities, but our heart and spirits as well. So I've just been very, very happy to be on this journey and on this road and it sounds to me tonight that I'm talking to folks that are interested in that as well. And I see that I have a very intensely interested person there who isn't actually a person. Uh, and, uh, it's funny because it reminds me that I um, just got back from one of our school sites in Ohio and they had visited one of our sites in Austin who are now using animals, particularly dogs, uh, very, very extensively in working with kids who with with trauma. So, um, you know, there's a there's an addition here that we we should acknowledge, and it's wonderful that uh, is present, you know, as well. So, um, for those of you that are like seeing that and saying, "What's going on here?" Uh, am I doing animal therapy tonight? But no, I'm not. But, but I, I think that it has a real place in what we're talking about. So here's what I thought I would do tonight. And uh, I'm wondering if one of you can tell me about, do you have a sense of how many people are on beside the three of us? Um, yeah, it looks like live right now. I think we're about six people tuning in. Great, great. So I, uh, I hope with your permission, uh, and you could say in the chat box, I'm going to excuse myself with this, I, 
I'd like to, since the topic tonight is particularly around building resilience, and one of the ways that I've been very involved in doing that is to bring mindful awareness practices into K-12 through education, that we actually start with a mindful awareness practice. So um, how are you? Are we all okay with that? And All right. So... So what I'm going to simply ask us to do is to be comfortable in where we're sitting and really, really have our feet on the ground, uh, have your hands, if possible, on your lap, and to allow your spines to be relaxed but yet erect. So for some of you, you might have to not lean back in your chairs, uh, but move a little forward so that happens. And I'm going to bring us inward through the sound of the chime. And when you hear the, when we hear the end of this chime, just see if you want to decide to close your eyes for this probably two minute at the most mindful awareness practice, or whether you want to just keep them open and let them gaze down in front of you. So let's begin by first being aware of the breath, wherever you feel it most prominently. Might be in the rise and fall of your chest or your abdominal area, or it might even be as the air is entering and leaving your nostrils. So just choose one of those areas of your body right now that calls to you, and just begin to follow the breath. On the in-breath, and the out-breath. Just allowing yourself to sink into the chair a little more. So just take this time to go inward, and allowing the breath to help you do that. Just noticing the breath not changing it in any way, but just noticing it on the in-breath and the pause and the out-breath. Just taking a moment to check in first with your energy level, not trying to judge it in any way, but just noticing. Are you alert? You're tired? Fidgety? Um, what are some words that would describe your energy level for yourself? Just see if you could give it some words. And again, coming back to the breath. And then any feelings that are arising for you. you're feeling right now. You might have feelings that have been coming in from what has just happened today in your life. Or they might be caught up and they might be present. Just how you're feeling about being part of this group tonight. 
So check in and see what's going on for yourself. Now let's just do a check-in with our bodies, beginning with our head, our neck, just allowing our shoulders to relax a little more. Just letting a wave of relaxation flow into our whole chest area, down our arms, to the tip of our fingers. It's taking a breath in and out into the abdominal region, our pelvic area and our lower back, and just gently letting a wave of relaxation flow down the legs, very slowly, to the tips of the toes. Just letting this be a moment of time for yourself in restoration, in renewal. Checking if there's any part of your body that might need a little extra attention. You might be in pain, or it just simply might feel like it's carrying some stress. And if that's the case, to just focus on that part of your body for a moment and gently and lovingly ask it to relax. Breathe into that part of your body. Giving it the relaxation that it needs. And now coming back to the breath. And whatever way is comfortable for you, to just make a commitment with yourself and with all of us present to be as present as you can be this next 45 minutes or so. That we can receive and give everything we're meant to give and receive from each other in this precious time we have right now. With this group of people at this time. And let's let the sound of the chime bring us back right here, right now. So just let your body stretch in any way it needs to. And I hope I didn't lose anybody to sleep, (laughs) but it's possible. You know, for those of you that know a little bit about mindfulness meditation, uh, getting into that, that zone of the mind alert and the body relaxed, what starts to happen if the mind doesn't know that conscious state very well and it needs sleep, then the body says, for joy, for joy, I'm going to take some sleep. So it's not unusual if you're not used to doing a regular mindfulness practice 
that when your mind gets to that relaxed, alert place, that it takes sleep if it needs it. But once your mind is regular about going to that mindful, relaxed place, then however tired you are, that won't happen. Your mind knows the difference between a meditative state and a sleep state. So that's interesting. So um, maybe we should start with a question that you have, and, and I'll go from there. And what I want to make sure to do for the group that's on as well is to make sure we have time for you to ask questions in the direction you want to go in. So I, I, I'm prepared, but I'm prepared to go in any direction. And we also have a four-minute video that I'm probably going to show early on. And then we have a closing as well. So uh, we'll just watch the time that we have time for all of that. Okay, great. Um, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. I feel like I, myself, uh, I'm developing a, a mindful awareness practice. Um, I do it most mostly in motion. I'm a runner, so that's when I can really um, be aware of what I'm thinking and, and feeling and also be able to kind of just notice them, be separate from them. So um, sitting... And uh, especially in this podcast, <laughs> yeah. what I noticed was, you know, a lot of um, my attention wanting to be in other places. So, but yeah. it's it wonderful. Um, I'm wondering about, from our poll, we discovered that people have um, sort of different avenues of getting some of this work into their work and um, to support their students. And so if somebody is out there who is interested in um, really developing more of, um, of, of an impact in their building uh, towards social emotional learning or mindfulness or restorative justice or any of these um, um, avenues for social emotional learning, how do you suggest they might begin? Is there a way, um, how do they prioritize? Is there a way that they could understand maybe their own um, strengths and what they need to work on and how they need to talk to adults and whom they need to talk to? Do you have any right. about that? Great question. Well, um, just a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, I mean, the, the first one is that, you know, it's it's interesting that you use these this different terminology, you know, to describe basically the social and emotional development of children uh, and the part that schools can play in that. And we have words like character ed. We have words like positive behavior supports. Uh, we have social and emotional learning. Um, we have mindfulness, you know, so how are they all connected? Yeah. Uh, w one of the interesting things that I am involved in right now is a national commission for social and emotional academic, I'm sorry, social, emotional, and academic development uh, hosted by the Aspen Institute. And about 14 commissioners who are coming from all sectors of the world, from education to government to business. And then there's a distinguished group of educators 
and a distinguished group of scientists that are underneath the commission. And I have the privilege of being one of the distinguished educators. And we are appointed for two years. And part of why I'm bringing this up is because part of what we hope to do is to begin to make sense of all these different words that we're calling things. And what can we uh, agree to and what could we say they all have in common? And then what are we suggesting to schools nationwide? And a year from January, uh, we are going to be delivering a report to the nation after our two-year appointment. And um, we are, we're expecting that this report will have important effects on policy, on funding, and on all those different things. So I say all of that to say that uh, we come about teaching and learning about social and emotional development of children as a universal part of what happens in schools through many different avenues. My feeling is that the best possible avenue right now is through the field of social and emotional learning. And I say that mainly because of the research, that there are over 200 studies, and there's a meta-analysis that's out that you could read on the CASEL website, the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, it's castle.org, where you could see that we've done a meta-analysis of taking over 200 programs that are not for tier two or three kids, most of whom you deal with very often, but a universal program that has been in existence in a school for at least two years and has had uh, a high quality evaluation. There are over 200 of those programs. And what we found from the meta-analysis is that when social and emotional learning skills, particularly skills, are taught by the classroom teacher or another school person with fidelity, which means that it isn't just here's an activity there, here's another activity there, but we see this field as a body of knowledge that has developmental lens to it, that has a culturally appropriate lens, that has a trauma-informed lens, that we're teaching these skills in that kind of way, then all kinds of good things begin to happen, particularly around pro-social development, where kids are, you know, have more empathy, greater regulation of, of emotion, uh, a lot of pro-social skills. Also, they decrease in risky behaviors, such as bullying and potential drug and alcohol use. And the other good news is that they improve 11 percentile points in their standardized tests as measured by their math and reading scores. And so we now know that this is key to being more successful with all children that social emotional learning begins to be part of the regular way we do school. And one of the things that we're saying at the National Commission is 
we're, we're kind of doing a play on words and we're saying, just remember, learning is social and emotional. You know, we can no longer wait for kids to get to needing to see one of you, which we're glad that's happening in schools and should always be there as a secondary and third intervention. But clearly, we need to realize that that their social and emotional development are so linked to one's academic competence that we can no longer see them as separate. You know, and when kids are coming with the level of anxiety that they're coming to school with, or the level of trauma, we know that however interesting a lesson might be, that if a teacher or another support person in the school is not approaching that child in a more holistic way, realizing that the influence of those other things are critical to how he or she is going to do in academic competence. Um, So one of the things I think we're learning is that we really want to be people in schools, and I think that school psychologists can play an important role in this, in saying that we don't have to wait for kids to get in trouble before we pay attention uh, intentionally to their social and emotional development. And to me, what that would look like is that there's an actual research-based, evidence-based program that you as school psychologists might be involved in helping to get people excited about, introduced to, et cetera, but really kind of being on that bandwagon that says, let's not think that our kids don't need this as much as they do any other curriculum area, you know? So I think that that's one thing that we could begin to do. Uh, as school psychologists, we can begin to say, look, this is not just about um, thinking about a kid's social and emotional development when we see that they're lacking, when we see the deficit, but it's saying that there are a whole set of skills that we could be teaching young people that are going to make them more able to deal with all the stresses that come their way. Uh, and really increase their resilience. So I think that's the one piece that I think about. But then as I think about that, I actually feel that one of the biggest things we have to be able to do is to be patient about what we do with students before we, before we do the work for adults as well. So what we've learned in the field of social-emotional learning is that we did try to do that. We did try to say uh, that uh, if you chose a research-based program and began to do it with fidelity, this was really important, and, and schools began to do that. Castle was involved in actually doing almost like a Uh, a report that said which programs were sort of gold standard programs that had evaluation to show. But what we realized as we started to do that work, we began to feel that 
we had to backtrack because if if adults didn't start doing the work on themselves, then it wasn't working. You know, they were so eager to begin to try this program or that program uh, and bring it into their kids so that they would, quote, be less bullying or they'd feel less stress. And lo and behold, uh, there wasn't enough time for them first to make it real for themselves. So I would say the other important role a school psychologist could play is helping, helping schools not jump over the adults, but even being part of the actual professional development of adults, depending on your own skills, you know, and uh, after I got back from the, uh, the state uh, psychology association meeting, I realized that some of you really need to get more proficient in some of these specialties like mindful awareness practice that you yourselves put yourself on, uh, you know, a, a road to doing that so that you could be possibly in a position in a school to be doing some professional development around that, around teacher wellness, around how teachers are dealing with their own stress before they begin to think about bringing this in with kids. You know, um, one of the things I talk a lot about that I've learned from one of my teachers, Parker Palma, he says, whenever you want to do something in the world, just remember to do the work before the work, which means, you know, what do you have to do first to be a real model of this work, whatever it is you are espousing to bring into the work, you know? And uh, I think that that could be a role that some of you play for the adults in the buildings that you're in. Um, I'm wondering if anyone has written, uh, well, maybe before I hear what questions might have arisen, I'd like to, I think I'd like to play this uh, short video and I wanna tell you a little bit about this video first. Okay. These are young people uh, in grades three and four and five, and they have had social and emotional learning as part of their school experience. And they are talking with someone who has really gained their trust, I feel as you'll see. And they're talking a little bit about first, what makes them anxious? What What's on their mind that really prevents them from maybe fully being present in school? And then they talk a little bit about what are some ways in which they try to strengthen, they wouldn't call it their resilience, they wouldn't perhaps know that word, but notice the things they suggest that they do and see, and we'll talk a little bit about what did you notice. And then finally, they end with what could adults do for them that could be helpful to them in dealing with the stresses of their life. So I'm going to ask whoever of you can do that easily to put this on. And this, this video is available, by the way. We'll figure out the link to it. Um, 
or we could put it on Google Hangout, perhaps. I, I'm not sure how to, how, but but it will be available to anybody that wants to use this. And and it needs to get to the beginning. This is not the beginning. Thanks. Okay. It's not there yet. It like worries me like what's gonna happen in the future. Every time I try to socialize, I worry that I might not be the kind of person people want me to be. Drama. Getting hurt. Tests. Being afraid that I might get lost. What I want to be when I grow up. Changing schools, I've done that a lot. What I do sometimes is I take a deep breath. And like that, and do that until I calm down. I just try to not give up. I, like in my head, I'm like, I can do this. Don't give up. I do something else, and then, then you can go back to it, and you feel better. Wiggling your wiggles out. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just try to find someone that I can try to talk to and share my feelings. And then... If you have a piece of dirt in your hand, and the wind comes, and that's all the madness, the wind comes and blows away. The wind is like love, taking away the madness. If you have a parent that doesn't really care about you, or that doesn't like try anything to make you feel better in bad situations, then that child will just grow up with bottled up emotions, and like they... It's, it's a big difference for people with parents that actually care about them. Um, they could help us be courageous by telling us other strategies to help us. They kind of tell you like, when, what they did when they were younger and like, that they can just leave after doing something wrong. They try harder and they try and they get better. Because it's interesting how they their problems are just like yours, and everyone has one of those problems sometimes, and then they can always help figure out what they had it to. Sometimes it's just giving them hugs. They let you talk about your emotions, and they do whatever they can to help you. That's a principle. Sometimes when you do things, they smile. Like, I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and most of the adults I know they help me. If you have a good role model in your life, then you'll learn from them and slowly pick up their habits and that can turn you to optimism and trying your best for anything that might be difficult. It'll yeah. get happier and happier and happier. <laughs> <laughs> it's just endless happiness. Until you just remember. <laughs> you know that feeling when you're going up a roller coaster, and then when you finally get to the top, the top, and then, and then it's like turns and twists, and you feel so much lighter because you're like flying, and then that's the feeling because it feels so wonderful and so great. 
we might be small and we might have other feelings, but we're all the same as human beings and we all respect each other the exact same. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so, oof, I'll just take that in for a second. And uh, I'm wondering uh, if folk, can folks speak or do they, could they only use the chat? They can only use the chat or tweet. Okay. Um, and we have had some, some great comments going on. Um, let me scroll through, and I know that somebody, um, you know, mentioned wanting a therapy dog. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> we've, let's see, I'm just scanning here. Um, you're singing uh, their song every time. There's a little extra money. It seems like admin hires another reading or math person. It's never uh-huh. for someone to help with social and emotional strategies. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the, and and I think that has to do with that we think that to improve those things, more of those things have to happen. You know, more reading has to happen to improve reading. And I think this is where you folks can play such a key role in in professional development and helping people see what we're talking about when we talk about emotional intelligence, what we talk about when we are talking about mindfulness, and how connected up they are to having kids be more ready to learn. And that that's really what's going on here and, and what has to happen. Um, I think that one of the reasons we're excited about this report to the nation is that clearly we're going to be saying that. We're going to be talking about how, how we keep adding more of something to improve it, particularly around the academics, versus realizing just how the brain works and and the fact that we have to be able to improve kids' ability to focus. And to improve kids' ability to focus, they have to be able to regulate their emotion. And to regulate their emotion, they have to have the skills to be able to do that. That it can't be just please calm down. And, you know, we tried with the PBIS, you know, of here's how you're walking and here's how you're talking and whatever. And, you know, but none of that in any way uh, can carry over easily in a skill that is developed in a kid. It's compliance, you know, that approach versus uh, actually developing skills. And particularly with the mindfulness work, what we're developing is, um, we're really working with changing the neural pathways of how kids, how kids learn, uh, and and how they can strengthen that part of the brain that is their their memory and their folk and their ability to focus. So it's going to have a huge positive effect if we start turning this around in our heads and putting the attention where it should go. Um, but I, I agree. Um, uh, were there any other questions in particular that people are sharing and would love to just any reactions you had to the video? 
Well, I loved how in the video the um, the children's personalities really shone through. Uh, the two boys with they they just seemed um, even as though even as they are expressing some really um, deep and consequential emotions, their joy and their uh, silliness and their yeah. relationship with each other really um, shone through and. It's just beautiful to see kids being comfortable enough yeah. to really express themselves that way and just be themselves. Yeah, yeah. and it, it had a lot to do with who was doing the who was doing the interviewing, by the way. Oh, who's you know got a master's in social and emotional learning for, uh, mm-hmm. in program in Canada, uh, only program really in North America that gives a master's in in uh, a specialty in social emotional learning. Uh, I mean, the, I noticed a lot of things with, with what was happening with the kids. I don't know if you noticed the one girl who talked about parents who don't care, you know, and I'm sure you picked that up as school psychologist, you know, and was wondering if, you know, she's talking about herself, mm-hmm. you know, and and that's the way in which she's trying to tell us something. And then later on in the video, I don't know if you caught it, but how the girl had her arm out extended literally physically in support of her, mm. which was so moving, you know, that she kind of picked up what had been said before. And so when she started to speak, she kind of reached out her arm, just like she was there, you know, I'm here, um, was really very powerful. And, and sort of the things that kids said they did to improve and build their resilience. You know, they were all the things that we could do more consciously and we could teach kids to do more. You know, we're hardwired for resilience. In other words, it's innate within us. However, uh, how well we develop the capacity to be resilient has to do with the experiences that we have in our lives and what gets shaping those experiences in terms of our neural pathway? And I know that as school psychologists, you know a lot about this. But that's the tricky part here, you know, that, um, that the good news is that we've learned that because of neuroplasticity, because the brain is shaped by the experiences that it has, that's what trauma, of course, is all about. And that's what... Uh, unfortunately, trauma at a very early age, you know, as you probably know, I'm not telling you anything new, is is in one's implicit memory, meaning that anything less than, you know, two years old, uh, a child at a pre-verbal time uh, is having an experience, perhaps of trauma, is not able to store anything that they're learning about that experience because the hippocampus is not fully developed yet till three or four even years old. And that's the part of the brain that helps us remember our successes and kind of helps us go there. And it helps with obviously building our resilience. So you get a child that has had early childhood trauma and then comes to school with that learned pattern already that could even be fixed, you know, 
However, what we're learning from the work in mindfulness is that the good news is that with the concept of neuroplasticity, we could begin to unlearn those patterns by bringing in patterns of relaxed alertness and calmness, sort of what I've described before uh, for those who heard me speak of kind of putting those deposits in a bank account, you know, just before when we had that experience on the phone together, if we got into that relaxed alert place and we really used that moment, then we were putting literally some deposits in that bank account of that neuroplasticity that is helping us get to a calmer place when we need it. And it's cumulative. That's the good news. So, you know, even though we can't change what's happening to kids in terms of their trauma, we can begin to help them know that they can strengthen that part of the brain that might begin to undo some of that trauma. Uh, And, you know, we're seeing, for example, with vets who are coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq that uh, they're taking mirror images of the brain and then they're putting them through something called MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is an eight-week course in mindfulness. And we actually see a change in their brain structure. The lines that were trauma lines are still there, but in some cases, they are much less indented. They're beginning to form other neural pathways. And it isn't like that trauma ever goes away, but the other gets so strong that it begins to take over. It's what can potentially happen. So, you know, this is really exciting work to be doing in schools. I'm looking at the time and I'm so shocked. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm wondering if there's another question that might, might be coming from folks that are listening. Um, that's, well, that's we're popping up now. <laughs> uh, Linda, you, you just reminded me when you spoke of, of that online course, I believe you mentioned that there was an online program for mindfulness for developing our own mindful practice that yes. adults could sign up. I did. It's, it's, uh, it's from sounds true. Okay. Sounds true. Uh, it's a publishing company, uh, and uh, they uh, they are now for the first time doing this online. The actual official, very heavily researched mindfulness based stress reduction. And so, uh, I would strongly recommend if you can't do it in person, which of course is the best thing to do and and mindfulness based mbsr teachers are all over the place you know if you google mbsr uh you'll see that maybe there's something in your area but if you can't do it in that way for the very first time john kabat-zinn's work uh has he has decided to do it online and uh you know you'll actually hear him and see him online and it, it should be a wonderful experience. I've taken it, the course, but I'm thinking of taking it online just to see, you know, how, how it goes, you know. And, but I would say that one of the big next steps for folks would be to do that. The second big next step would be to 
become familiar with the Castle website because we now have something called a district school guide where we give direction to schools and school districts of how they could go about beginning to think about bringing social and emotional learning into their school. And it's a step-by-step process. And again, school psychologists could play an important role in helping schools think about that and getting, you know, four or five faculty people that are particularly interested in this and going online together and looking through the CASEL website and, and taking the rubric that's there of where you are as a school and then going from there and seeing where you might want to be and where you might want to go. I know we're coming towards the end, Linda, but I, I wanted to ask, are you familiar? I know that there are some states that have social emotional learning standards and objectives like the state of Illinois comes to mind and they yes. are based on castle. Do, is that something that if your state doesn't have that yet, something that you might recommend school psychologists get behind? Yeah, I would actually say that one of the things Castle's doing, and this will be on the website too, is working with 17 states that are are working as learning communities to be thinking about standards for their state. And I know New York State, for example, has a group that they would love a school psychologist to be part of, uh, and uh, and and other states as well. Connecticut is definitely a state. I don't know all 17 of them, but yes, that's definitely happening. I think that, um, so that's more at the advocacy end. I think that what you could do at the school end, however, is to really be developing your own skills in this area that go beyond what you know as school psychologists, both in the SEL and in the mindfulness, and then feeling confident enough to be offering professional development in a school. Uh, I think that could be a big contribution because I think coming from you with the background around the psychological background is going to be important for teachers because I think that one of their fears that they have is this is not my milieu, you know, social emotional learning. Um, It's the school psychologist. It's the guidance counselor, you know, where we have to help folks see that, no, that's not the case, you know, um, that if there were these skills being taught on a regular basis, then then there would be other things that a school psychologist could be about doing and would have more time to be doing those things. And the other thing I would say is that as you think about your small groups, to think strongly about um, using a, a developmentally appropriate research-based SEL curriculum so that you're actually skill building with the group of kids that are presenting themselves with need to be in a small group, that yes, they need a therapeutic environment, but can it be both? Can it also be skill building? So I would strongly recommend you thinking in that way as well. Um, can we have like two minutes, do you think, for a closing? Because we're thinking about... Um, Many of us are going to be talking about Thanksgiving and celebrating Thanksgiving. And I just thought we might want to end with, uh, and you are going to need to be jotting these down in your chat box. Mm -hmm. And what I'd love to do once we start this activity is that um, 
any of you who can see the chat box would read these out loud, okay? So what I'd like to ask you to think about is, since last Thanksgiving, something that you're grateful for that has happened within this last year in your life um, that might not have been on your list a year ago mm -hmm. this year. So just take a moment and feel free to write it in the chat box. And if you see any, start reading them out. So we have a couple from, from just ourselves. So <laughs> my home, uh, that was Anna. My, for me, I have a new job that I did not expect last Thanksgiving, but it's going really mm -hmm. well. <laughs> um, decluttering. Uh Kids are doing well in college and high school. That's me again. I clean my closet. Anna's decluttering made me think of that. I'm really grateful that I finally got to that. Uh, sleeping all night. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I've yeah. been trying to intentionally go to bed a little bit earlier. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, oh, I'm grateful for having my first intern, which allows me to take a sick day when I am sick. That's wow. fantastic. That's a biggie, isn't it? Yeah. That's taking yeah. care of yourself. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I started to teach a full year in the master's program at Columbia with the same students. Wow. Last year, we didn't have specialty in it, in the K through 12 spirituality, mind, body. And as I was saying to some of you, um, that those of you that are really interested in this work, uh, half of the people that take this master's program at Columbia are already have their master's degree so it might be something you are interested in and it's a cohort model which means that it's two summers and then there's one other time you meet during the semester in person but the rest is online and uh it's an incredible master's program and you would go deeply into the work that we're talking about if you chose to be part of it there's also two other specialties within the program Besides K through 12 education, there's a social entrepreneurship and then there's alternative approaches to health and healing that you could bring into your practice. So um, it has three particular threads that you could take beside the regular courses. That's wonderful. I know we have a lot of New Yorkers uh, who follow schools like podcasts, so I'm hoping that um, if they do join you, they'll let you, they'll let you know that they uh, are <laughs> part of our community. Yeah. So thank you, folks. Uh, it was a pleasure being part of things, and uh, uh, 
also see other things on my website of lindalantieri.org and uh, I hope to see some of you at some classes that I might be doing. Very cool. And and I just want to say, too, that I'm still like I'm feeling relaxed from, from the, the exercise earlier. So it's, I need to do that before a podcast now all the time because I'm always so like jittery. Great. <laughs> so I might come into my routine now. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. I'm grateful for the time you gave us today. And um, tune in people out there on December 3rd with Lynn Kenny. We'll be um, back in December. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanksgiving, everyone. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Take care, everyone.